Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to Red or Dead, a bi-weekly podcast where we talk about the world of mysteries and thrillers. This is episode 150, and we are recording on Tuesday, April 4th. I'm Katie McLean Horner, along with Kendra Winchester, and we are coming to you from Book Riot. Happy 150th episode, Kendra! Wow, that is a great milestone. How yeah. do you feel being the veteran of the pod? <laughs> I, yikes. Yeah, I mean, it's just now at this second hitting me. Like, I knew, I knew 150 was coming up. And I, you know, I I typed that into the show notes, but it wasn't until I just said it, I went, whoa, that's a lot of episodes. (laughs) Holy cow. It is. It is. It is quite, it is quite the number. I feel like that's a great achievement. Yeah, and I mean, in I think June is out is the Red or Dead anniversary, but this June will mark six years of Red or Dead, which to me is just impossible. And I feel like I say that every time I make a comment about how long the show has been going on. But oh my gosh, we are coming on six years! <laughs> ah, <laughs> yeah, it's hard to believe. I remember when it first started. I was going to say, I do too. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, I was going to say, well, I have a little mini existential crisis over here. How are you doing? (laughs) Well, um, I was out for a conference. And so our last episode, we recorded early, but I went to the Appalachian Studies Conference and it was a lot of fun. I mean, we know how to, you know, we Appalachians know how to to have a good time, but we took the corgis (laughs) with us. And so they played in my parents' backyard for days, like just days. They just, they have a huge backyard and dad was trying to clean up sticks after the storm. So you have like Gwenlian grabbing a stick and just running around the yard with pure joy. She looks very confused when you throw it on the burn pile. Like, (laughs) I I am, I am sure they were just a huge help. (laughs) They were, you know, they were great. When a dog goes to Kentucky... They have the best time. It's like, it's like heaven, really. Uh, We did keep her out of the little creek that's by my parents' house. And it's probably good because we we do know like snakes are usually down there. And we're like, probably not the best. They're black snakes, so they're not poisonous, but like, probably not the best choice, Gwenlian. Yeah, no, as soon as, as soon as you said, we kept them away from the creek. I'm like, that is probably smart. Like, I, I don't trust anything that might live in a creek. Yeah, yeah. And, and Gwenlian, how do I say this without insulting my own fur child? Um, She does not have the best survival skills. So <laughs> she she doesn't really know. Like when we threw the stick in the burn pile, for example, she didn't really register that it was there was fire right near like, and dad has this brick wall around it, right? So it's fairly safe for her being short, but she kept trying to stick her nose in between the, the cement blocks. And I was like, no, honey, we don't. Go get a different stick. That stick is gone. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I my my cats, we they are 100% indoor cats. They don't try to run outside, but I just have a feeling that if they ever did find themselves outside somehow, they would just be so baffled. And I've and I've told my husband, I'm like, you know, it's a good thing that our cats don't try to make a break for the outside because I'm like they would just have no idea how to function. Just absolutely no idea. Like, Dini likes to hang out at the window, and he loves watching out the window. And we'll try to, like, literally one time there was a hawk, like, sitting on the ground in the shared green space that we have in our apartment community. Like, literally a hawk on the ground. And he was more interested in the leaves on the windowsill. And I'm just like, <laughs> he, I'm like, oh, he's not the brightest. Yeah. But we love him anyway. And so we like, do. Well, this is why we keep him indoors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, our poor fur kids. They just were meant 
They were meant for a life of luxury, you know? They were really meant yes. for the great outdoors. Yep. Yep. No, that, as soon as you started speaking, I'm like, yep, life of luxury is what is what the, these two knuckleheads have. Yep. I, I feel like the Corgis got their nature tourist nature uh, from their dad, the <laughs> Californian, who is happy to go explore nature, but anytime they have to spend any significant time in it, it's like, that probably wouldn't work well for you little Corgis, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Yeah, that's how I feel when I go into the outdoors as well. And I'm like, you know, it's really nice to be here, nice to see it. But yeah, if I had to go camping, I, I would not do well. But yeah, that's just me. <laughs> you know, I've only spent w one night camping and it was, it was we had to build our own little tents from tarps. And so you were partnered oh, yeah. with someone. And so this girl yeah. and I partnered and we had one tarp as our shelter. And so we had like sleeping bags and we put them out on the tarp, but it was open on all sides. And we woke up to like spiders everywhere. <gasps> no. Mm -mm. Yes. Mm -mm. Yes, indeed. And I was like, I'm never doing this again. Oh my gosh. No, uh-uh. No. Oh, I cannot even. Like, I have a friend and she and her husband went camping in, oh my gosh, I cannot remember. I For the life of me, I cannot remember, or I get Yosemite and Yellowstone mixed up. I can't remember which one is in Wyoming. But that one, <laughs> not the one in California, but they went camping at that one and they, it was at a campsite, but they were roughing it. It was, it was a very bare bones campsite. And she said, yeah, like they woke up and there was like a full grown bull elk, like right outside their tent. And I'm like, mm, yeah, I'm like, <laughs> I love wildlife. And there is a part of me that would be like, well, if not friend, why friend shaped? And I would try to pet it. But at the same time, I'm also like, yeah, there's a reason, you know, humans and wildlife don't usually live that close together. <laughs> and as much as I want to see a bear in the wild, the thought of a bear coming that close to my campsite, I would just be like, you know what? No, I, I we we invented hotels for a reason. <laughs> I feel like that's a that's a safe way to go. Yeah, it's a good it's a it's a good motto to l live your life by. But during your your Appalachian conference, did you did you get a chance to read anything, or were you just so busy with like conference stuff that you're just like, yeah, no. <laughs> I did because it was all about talking about Appalachian books, and there's a lot of publishers there and all sorts of things. But uh, I ended up listening to a book that's actually out today. So I'm going to talk about House of Cotton by Monica Brashears in our new book segment. I finished it and I thought it would be great to talk about because it is out like today and it is amazing. It's a debut and we should all go support Afrolachian authors. So I will just keep everyone in suspense until then. Yeah, and I have not, other than the books that I'm going to be talking about later in the show, I have not read like literally anything in the last few weeks because I have been unfortunately sucked into the world of video games. And uh, it's not a video game that is conducive to uh, like listening to an audiobook and playing at the same time, unfortunately. So I'm hoping to break the video game spell <laughs> at some point, but I don't I don't have much faith in that. Anyway, before we jump into the full episode, I do want to put out a quick shout out. If you have not heard yet, Book Riot is releasing a brand new newsletter called The Deep Dive. And this is different than Book Riot's usual newsletters because this is coming from outside experts in the world of books. So if you're looking for just fascinating stories or really informed takes on stuff happening in the book world, useful advice, anything from these outside experts, if you're interested in getting that twice a month in your inbox, the deep dive is definitely going to be for you. You can choose your membership level for $5 a month. You get the full edition of the newsletter twice a month. And if you're on the fence or just want some time before making a commitment, you can also get a free subscription that gets you what's known as the Splash Pad, which I think is adorable, which is a monthly roundup of the experts recommended reading and bookish lifestyle goods that you can get in your inbox for free. So if you are interested in checking out this newsletter, you can find more information at bookriot.substack.com. And with that... Let's go ahead and take a pause for our first sponsor. At Evernorth Health Services, 
We believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. All right. So if you are a new listener, welcome. We are delighted to have you. If you are a longtime listener, welcome back. We are so happy to be in your ears once more. And like we mentioned at the top of the show, we talk about mysteries and suspense and thrillers and just about anything that falls under that umbrella, whether we're talking about new releases or interesting subgenres that we haven't explored much or award news or adaptation news or anything along those lines. It is probably fair game for us to talk about if it is mysterious and or suspenseful. If you've listened to the show before, you know that this is always the point where we put out a call to our lovely listeners to let us know if you have any suggestions for upcoming episodes. They really do help us plan out our future shows. They let us know what you, the listeners, would like to hear more of. It's a great way for us to expand our own reading horizons. It's just a win-win situation all around. So, If you have any ideas or suggestions, you can let us know by sending us an email or reaching out to us via social media. We're going to have all of our contact information at the end of the show and in the show notes, so don't worry about getting it down right now. We just like to put out the call ahead of time just to get those creative juices flowing. Even if you don't have an idea but just want to say hi, that is also fantastic. We love hearing from our listeners. And if you enjoy this podcast, definitely head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review so that other people can find us. With that, let's go ahead and jump into some adaptation news that's uh, been put out in the last couple of weeks. And I have been yapping for what feels like a really long time. So, uh, Kendra, why don't you why don't you kick us off with your adaptation news? All right. So, uh, one of the biggest news items that we have today is that Amazon is adapting E. Lockhart's We Were Liars as a series. Now, this is a YA novel that really swept the young adult scene. Uh, I don't even know. Was it 10 years ago? About that, yeah. Uh, I I think it came out in, like, 2014. So this is the epitome of, like, rich people problems novel. And so this girl and her cousins were in this terrible fire, and she's trying to recover from it. There's suspense about memories of how the fire started what's going on why are there so many like weird things going on with her mom and her aunts and who gets to inherit what house like i said it's rich people problems but there's a big twist at the end which we will not reveal here and so i am very excited to see like what happens with this with this adaption yeah i loved this book like i remember reading it for the first time i remember finishing it on a plane and i just felt like I had been punched in the stomach and I was just like, oh my gosh. And I came back from vacation and this was a book that I was just running around and telling all my coworkers about. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to tell you anything about the plot, just read it. And so a few of my coworkers trusted me enough to read the book and then come back and they were like, oh my gosh. I'm like, I know, right? It's so good. (laughs) Yes. So very interested to see what happens with that. I don't think we have a release date, but stay tuned. Keep your eyes peeled if you're looking out for that one. And Katie, you have our next piece of news because there, there's just, there's so much going on, apparently. <laughs> yeah, a lot of adaptation stuff coming out. But this one, I mean, it's just written in the law that I am requ- I am just bound by law to mention this. But Oscar Isaac will play a sexy Kurt Vonnegut in a new crime series. I am just quoting the experts on here. What a headline. (laughs) I know. Not just a headline, but if you click on the link in the show notes, I have to read the first main paragraph in the article from LitHub, which is also the parent company of Crime Reads, which is one of our favorite resources. But please just bask in this amazing paragraph. Everyone's favorite smoldering short king, Oscar Isaac, recently seen playing the handsomest divorced professor in the world in the Ingmar Bergman remake slash extended knitwear commercial Scenes from a Marriage and sporting the greatest beard ever committed to celluloid in the David Lynch remake slash extended (laughs) sand commercial Dune. 
is in discussions to play a pre-fame Kurt Vonnegut in the upcoming eight-episode crime thriller, Helltown. I mean, that is... Oh, my goodness. That is, like, the most perfect paragraph ever written. I read that out loud to my really? husband, and he just glared at me and just got all mumbly. And I'm just like, I'm just quoting facts here. I'm like, even you have to admit his beard was impeccable in Dune. And he was like, yeah, it was. <laughs> so, and they also have a picture... I'm assuming this was for the promo for this show because I'm like, if not, this is a really, he unintentionally looked like Kurt Vonnegut in this photo. But there is a photo and as soon as I saw it, I'm like, yep, that, I can see that. But this is actually, (laughs) so yeah, the show is called Helltown. It is based on a book by Casey Sherman. And the general premise is, um, well, it centers around Kurt Vonnegut and in it takes place in 1969 when he was still a struggling novelist. He was also a car salesman, and then uh, he's on living on Cape Cod. And then two women disappear, and then are later discovered murdered underneath the sand dunes on the outskirts of a nearby town. Kurt Vonnegut becomes obsessed and just becomes embroiled in like in this hunt for a serial killer. Yeah, so I'm like, I would have watched this even if it were just like a biopic about Kurt Vonnegut because it's Oscar Isaac. But the fact that it's Oscar Isaac and a crime series, and I'm like, the red or dead gods are smiling on me. (laughs) It is a glorious day when I get to podcast and talk about Oscar Isaac at the same time. So um, I'm very much looking forward to this series, if you could not tell. (laughs) And our last piece of news is something a little sadder, unfortunately, which... I was sad to see because I haven't seen the first season and we learned that Amazon has canceled Three Pines after just one season. Moment of silence, really. Yeah, I feel like it's part of this growing, I don't want to say trend, but it's part of this growing business model with streamers, especially Netflix, where they greenlight a show Then after one or two seasons, they cancel it, even if it was getting good reviews, even if it was getting good numbers. It's like they they put it out there and then immediately cut it. And I like I have not seen Three Pines yet, but from what I had heard, the show was really good. So I'm yeah, I'm I'm a little surprised. Actually, no, I'm I'm a lot of surprised. (laughs) But yeah, and because I mean, I feel like. Louise Penny fans have been waiting such a long time for there to be some kind of adaptation of her novels and then to have it and then all of a sudden have it cut after a season. I'm just like, really? That stinks. Yeah, I I get very frustrated with, like you said, like the different streaming services cutting like popular television shows because the reason I stay subscribed to these is because of my favorite shows, right? These other shows are great to watch in between but like I subscribe to Netflix because I want to watch Stranger Things mm-hmm. like that is, you know, so like there are these like little cornerstone shows and I feel like they're getting rid of them or they're not like investing in quality like Bridgerton first season stunning second season was good. But like now they're changing the order of like the books and like what's happening. And I understand why because like three books almost happen at the exact same time. So sure. But like it makes me nervous. You know, anyway, that was like a total side tangent, but I feel like relevant. (laughs) Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, becoming increasingly confused with streaming behavior and selections. And yeah, I mean, I, I don't subscribe to these different streaming options, you know, just willy nilly. I subscribe specifically because I'm like, oh, like we have Hulu because yes, that has Archer and it has the X-Files. That's why I watch it. You know, like, yeah, Netflix has, like you said, Stranger Things, and it had Arrested Development, and then they got rid of Arrested Development. And I'm just like, what are you doing? <laughs> so I'm I'm not entirely sure what, you know, what the reasons are. Probably, you know, I, I imagine there's a, probably a fair number of viewers who are upset. But yeah, I figured that that was, even though, even though it's a bit of a bummer, we should probably mention it because I've ima- I imagine we have a fair number of Louise Penny fans listening in. So, yes, yes. 
So very sorry to announce that. But let's move on to a more upbeat topic. And that is our annual Edgar Award nominee show, which we started doing, I don't know, a few years ago, where before the Edgar Awards are announced, we pick an episode and then we each talk about a couple of books that are nominated for the different categories. And you know, just talk about, you know, why we think they were a good selection, if we've read other books in the category, you know, might compare and contrast, that kind of a thing. But it's a good opportunity to pick books that we haven't read yet that are certified excellent because they've been nominated for one of the most prestigious mystery awards. So as I've mentioned before, the uh, this year's Edgar Award nominees are, I've actually, considering I, I feel like I read very few new releases last year. I've read a fair number of the books that have been nominated. And so I'm feeling I'm like, Oh, okay, I actually have read some of these. Um, And if I haven't read them, I have a copy of them sitting on my shelf. Well, yeah, there's a, a wide range of different categories. And this is my first year reading from the list. And I feel like I had read a lot of the books, or I had heard of the books, and they were already on my TBR. So and I feel like there are a lot of great titles from a wide range of backgrounds and story types and all sorts of things. So it was really interesting to dive into this, the well, these multiple lists. Yeah. And what's also interesting is that, well, you have the Edgar Award categories, but then you also have these other like memorial awards. So they have the Mary Higgins Clark Award, they have the Sue Grafton Memorial Award, the Lillian Jackson Braun Memorial Award, and each one kind of focuses on a different, slightly different type of mystery. But I feel like it just really broadens the the scope and the depth of the of the nominated books and yeah there's just a bunch of really excellent titles to pick from so why don't you uh go ahead and give us give us your first pick right so one of my favorite you know crime thriller novels of last year was of course Shudder by Ramona Emerson you may remember this was nominated for a lot of different awards and so it's great to see it on this list as well uh, this as a novel by a Diné author, and also features a uh, woman who is a, she's like a photographer for like the crime unit for this police department. And she's also Diné, Rita Totachin. And she, as her job as a forensic photographer, has to go to these horrific crime scenes. But one of the things that kind of helps her in her career is that she can actually see ghosts. So as she's working with the Albuquerque Police Department, she's able to see ghosts and kind of help solve crimes that way. So one day she goes to a horrific, a horrific scene where this woman is like dead and it's very graphically violent and she's going photographing all the stuff that has happened to this woman. She sees this woman's ghost and that kind of sends her down a road of trying to figure out how this woman died. Did she intentionally like jump off this overpass thing or what happened to her. But then we also get her background from her childhood of when she first started seeing ghosts and what that was like for her. Yeah, it's just a fascinating novel. And I hope that this is a first in a series because I would love to read more about Rita's story. Yeah, I read this one last year as well. And I remember we were talking about it. I really liked this one. It was I went into it thinking like, okay, dark and creepy. And it was at first, but it became just this really just a fascinating story. It was really engrossing. It was very, it was sad at times. Like there's a lot of meditations about death and, you know, what it means to different cultures, like how they're different cultural relationships to death and how they interpret it. And it's just, it was so fascinating and so well-written. It was unlike most of the other books that, that I've read. And I just, I, it really made an impact for me. And it, it just was able as, I think this is her debut book. And it was really interesting to see the impact that this book made on the crime and thriller community. I think it is really great to see an Indigenous author write a character from her native nations like perspective because there are some cultural elements in the Diné uh, nation and like their connection with death 
And that's something that Rita really delves into. So I feel like if you're also Navajo, you're going to find so many different elements that this book is written from, you know, someone from your nation's perspective. And that's so important, especially in genre fiction, where we just don't see a lot of that happening. And uh, I just, this book is just a treasure. I still haven't found a print copy for myself. I need to, I need to go do that. Um, but that is Shudder by Ramona Emerson. All right. Well, before I jump into my first pick, let's go ahead and take a pause for our second sponsor. Okay, so my first pick was a book that I had not read prior to this episode. And this is The Woman in the Library by Solari Gentil. And this is nominated for one of the Memorial Awards. It's nominated for the Simon & Schuster Mary Higgins Clark Award. And the books that are nominated for this award are ones that really embody Mary Higgins Clark's brand of suspense, which is very pure in a way. Like there's not a lot of there. It's there's not a lot of blood. There's like any any outright violence tends to happen off screen, and it's just really about that pure feeling of suspense and what might happen, and is someone following the main character. And so these books tend to be, I don't want to say use the word gentle because they're not, they're not outright cozies, but they tend to be on the less intense end of the spectrum. And they also tend to be really good recommendations for a wide variety of readers because there isn't a lot of really intense violence. So I had heard a lot about this book last year when it came out and it had kind of been on my list. And then I saw it that it was nominated. I'm like, okay, I will take this opportunity to read it. So I actually, I listened to about a third of it in audio, and then I read the rest of it in print because we were coming up to the recording date and I needed to read a little bit faster. (laughs) Then, and audio, it, I just, obviously, unless you speed up the narration, which I don't like to do, you you can't get through audio as fast as you can in print for a lot of people. So I did do both. Um, I will very strongly recommend the audio version. If I had had more time, I would have happily listened to this entirely on audio. But anyway, so the main premise of the book is you have these four strangers who are at the Boston Public Library in the famous reading room. And they, these four strangers are all sitting at the same table when all of a sudden they hear a scream. And as they're like looking around going, you know, okay, what's going on? Security guards come in, they tell everyone, okay, stay put. And while they're waiting for the all clear, they kind of start to chatting. And then they realize that, hey, you know, we've got stuff in common. You know, this just kind of like this coincidence that all four of these people are sitting at the same table and they become friends. And then they find out the next day that there was a woman who was found murdered in the library that evening. And they go, oh my gosh, I think that was the woman who we all heard scream. So they start to kind of put on, you know, they, they put on their their amateur detective caps, some more more willingly than others. And then they start to realize that each one of them had their own reasons for being in the reading room that morning, and it just so happens that one of them is a murderer. That's not a spoiler, that's in the book description. So I immediately was like, okay, this this sounds really interesting. And what, what makes the book, I think, takes it from just, okay, you know, interesting mystery to, wow, really interesting story, is the... It's a story within a story, actually kind of within a story almost. Um, There's a lot of layers here to the way it's structured. So the main story um, that we are told about the four friends, that is presented as a fictional story that the fictional author is writing. And she is sending it chapter by chapter to a correspondent who I don't think she's ever met in person. They only communicate through letters. And so she's been sending a chapter at a time to this reader. And then in between the chapters, it's interspersed with his letters to her commenting on the chapter, making suggestions, that type of thing. So you get his commentary on the story as it's unfolding. 
He comments on cultural differences because the fictional author is Australian. He's American. It takes place in America. And he just kind of, and there's like this commentary about the writing process that unfolds that's really, really interesting. But you get, you know, the main story. And then you get the story that's kind of, you know, going on in the letters as you understand, like, the his relationship to the author. And then in, in the story that the fictional author is writing, her fictional character is writing a story that's based, uh, that's based on the events that she's experiencing. It's very, very meta in a lot of ways. And if you start thinking about it a little too much, your brain starts to hurt. But <laughs> it was really, really fascinating. And... That's all I'm going to say, because I'm afraid if I keep talking, I'm going to give away spoilers. So, yeah, I really enjoyed this book. And I got, like I said, I got about a third of the way through the audio version. And then last night I was like, okay, let me see how far I can get in the print version before we record. Well, I finished it in like, I I take that back. I started it, I started reading the print version, I think maybe on Sunday, and yes, yeah, Sunday into Monday, I just pounded through the rest of the book. And I really, really loved it. Have you had a chance to read this one yet, Kendra? I have not, but it sounds fascinating. I love like that intertextual type things of commenting on the story. It just sounds fabulous. Yeah. And there's a lot of in the 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 bulk of the story. There's also because the main character is a writer and the people that she's at the library with. One of them is a is a writer, and so there's a lot of stuff about the writing process, which I think for some readers, I mean, based on the Goodreads review, some, some readers may not be super interested in that element of it, but if that's something that floats your boat, I think you definitely want to pick up this novel. Okay, and then yeah, I'll cut it off there. Like I said, I'm afraid I'm gonna I'm gonna blab too much. But um, <laughs> again, the book is The Woman in the Library by Solari Gentle. All right, so my next pick is Devil House by John Darnielle. And I've talked about this one before, but I wanted to mention it again because I think, you know, looking on Goodreads as one does, um, I think a lot of people were upset that this novel wasn't what they expected. That is the biggest criticism that I've seen of this book. And I feel like that might be a fault of the copy that they have for the novel or something. I'm not sure, but it is a fantastic book but not what you might think. So with the title Devil House, I kind of went into it thinking that it would be like a haunted house thing or maybe like a house where there's a horrible crime and like there's spirits there. I had no idea what was going to happen, but it's not actually about any supernatural elements at all. So we follow a Gage Chandler and he is a true crime writer. And he really made his money with this one true crime case where this woman killed two boys. They had broken into her home. They were about to sexually assault her and she ends up killing them both. But she kind of, it's beyond self-defense is what it's argued because she like pounded, well, let's just say excessive force was used. Um, I will give you a graphic description. Uh, But he made his, his money by writing about the horrible moments of this woman's life of the boys, their family's most worst moments. And so it really looks at true crime, but in a fictional way. This is a novel. This didn't actually happen, but it does ask readers to examine what we feel about true crime and who is allowed to tell, not really who's allowed, but who should be telling these people's stories. Why aren't we asking or giving a platform to people who actually experience this to tell their stories? Why Why are we filtering it through these best-selling type novels that Gage Chandler is writing? So he buys a house where another horrible crime happened. And so while he's there, he's planning on writing again about this crime, and it kind of changes his life. And he ends up working on this manuscript, and he's not sure if he'll ever finish it. Um, This is such a fascinating intellectual like thought process on true crime. It is a slow burn, like... A novel about ideas. And so if that's not your vibe, then you might not enjoy this. This isn't like a thriller. This isn't fast paced. It's a very slow burn type of crime focused book. You know, I think what you said earlier about some readers being like, this isn't what I expected. I 
tried reading another one of his books before and I remember putting it down because I, I'm like I remember and of course I can't remember the name of it I know it has it was it had to do with the with the videotapes the kind of the creepy videotapes set in found in a rural area um Universal Harvest maybe does this sound familiar yeah. Okay. Yeah. I tried reading that a while ago and I wasn't able to get into it. I think because I had in my head an idea of what this book was going to be and it didn't pan out that way or it didn't seem to be panning out that way. But so to hear you talk about talk about it with this other book, I think I I mean that's I think that's that's probably just a, you know, a cornerstone of his writing. Like, you know, it's it's subversive. You're not, you know, whatever you think you're going to get from it is not what you're actually going to get. Universal Harvester. Harvester. Okay, I was very close. And I'm like it came yes. in a the the copy that I got and I think it was an advanced copy. It came in a plastic like VHS case like you would get from Blockbuster. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that and I was just like, oh, I really want to like I want to be head over heels in love with this book, but it just did not pan out that way. But yeah, I think, you know, that I think it might be worth giving it another shot and just kind of going into it with a different mindset. But anyway, that's not the book that you were talking about for this one. Just <laughs> something something that I just thought was interesting. No, I, I think that's I think that is a good point. And I really appreciate a lot of the true crime discussions. Not just in this fictional book, but in true crime books as well, they're asking readers to examine why they're reading true crime in the first place and why you would want, why are you fascinated with dead girls in particular? And I know I've mentioned before, but I really love Alice Boland's essay, Dead Girls, about America's fascination with these white, you know, usually beautiful young girls who go missing or who are murdered. Like, what about that has captured our imagination? And so I think that that's always a good like self-reflection kind of book to like, in, you know, to think about. But again, this does have a lot of graphic descriptions of murder and different things. So just FYI heading into it. But if you want a book that'll make you think, definitely check out Devil House by John Darniel. Well, that was actually a really good segue into my second pick, which is a true crime book. And my second pick is Slender Man, Online Obsession, Mental Illness, and the Violent Crime of Two Midwestern Girls by Kathleen Hale. And as many listeners are probably remember, back in 2014 in Waukesha, Wisconsin, which is outside of Milwaukee, two 12-year-old girls were arrested and imprisoned for the attempted murder of one of their friends. And it came out during the trial that the two girls had been obsessed with the creepypasta story Slenderman. On, they had found a bunch of Slenderman stories online. Most of us are vaguely familiar with this idea of Slenderman, like this kind of really tall, thin, faceless monster that... Uh, stalks groups of children and there's like this whole creepy mythos around it that was entirely created online but for these two these two girls they believed that slender man was real and that they needed to provide him with a sacrifice to keep him from killing their families and so that was what led up to the attempted murder of their friend their friend survived but obviously was deeply traumatized and this, besides being just such a shocking crime, um, one of the other elements of this story is that both of the girls, even though they were only 12 years old, they were tried as adults during wow. the, yeah. And with this book, this is the first, like, full-length account of this crime. And I remember this really, really vividly because, I, I mean, I grew up in Illinois, but we were very close to Wisconsin. We're less than an hour from Milwaukee. You know, Waukesha is not that far from where I live. And I remember where hearing about this and just being like, oh my gosh, like, you know, this is kind of, and like, even though I, I didn't, you know, I didn't spend a ton of time in Waukesha, the, the type of community that it was, like, this was very much where I grew up and it was just really, really shocking. And with this book, because there is so much sensationalism around this, around this story. And in fact, 
I think the author mentions early on in the book that there there has been so much not great journalism surrounding this that a lot of people when you talk about this they're like oh yeah well the the girl died no she didn't die like you know no one no one was actually killed but there was a lot of rumors and unverified information floating around so this is like the first actual like verified account of what happened and it really hones in on the fact that both of the girls who were who were on trial they were both dealing with a serious undiagnosed childhood mental illness in particular one of them had uh, childhood schizophrenia and in the other accounts and reports of what happened no one seemed to be talking about that either it just wasn't known or it went just kind of went unreported but there was you know a lot of these stories were built up about the type of people the, that these girls were and how they you know the events that led them to that point and the discussion of mental illness never really gets brought up and so this the author's really focusing in on the the mental illness aspect but also the ways in which it was kind of like kind of like a perfect storm because it's not only the undiagnosed mental illness, but it's also, she talks a lot about the Midwestern culture of like Wisconsin suburbs and, you know, this very, the very Midwestern idea of like, okay, we don't talk about things like mental illness. We don't, you know, we try to ignore problems. We don't have difficult discussions. Midwesterners don't like to create a fuss. Um, so there's a discussion of that. There's also discussion of how none of the teachers or the school psychologists or even the parents like really noticed any red flags that would have that may have prompted them to find help for one or both of the girls before this happened. The fact that the police department, you know, in Waukesha, they were like, the the most sensational thing the call that they had received in the last year was someone reported a large amount of dry blood on you know the sidewalk near their house and they were like it's paint you know like there's not you know not much happens so when they were presented with a crime like this they you know the police don't know how to process it they don't know how to question the girls they don't you know they really are out of their depth in terms of how to handle this. Um, and then add in the, because of the seriousness of the crime, they were tried as adults. And it's just becomes this, it's not just a look at what happened, but it's also all of the different factors that led to that point. Some individual, some cultural. It is, it is a very, very well-written book. It is also deeply sad. Um, obviously, all the trigger warnings for this. The author handles the material with sensitivity and nuance. Um, I think she does a really good job of portraying the girls um, who committed the crime as, you know, as struggling children. And, you know, she. I think she really takes a lot of care to, to present them with, with nuance and to indicate you know exactly what you know what kinds of things they were struggling with and it's really really well done it's a very it's a very fast read I only started I will say I have not finished it yet um but I'm about halfway through and I started it this afternoon like literally this afternoon um it is yeah it is a very engrossing and very sad look at this this whole situation um and given the since like i said given the sensationalism that has surrounded this case um i think the author does a really really good job at trying to like parse through all of that and not get swept away in different rumors or you know painting you know presenting a definitive picture of like, okay, this is what happened. It's black and white. You know, no, there's, there's a lot of stuff happening here. Um, but it definitely fits, like you were saying, Kendra, well, asking, asking questions about true crime and also kind of presenting this multifaceted view of true crime. You know, it's not just about the perpetrator and the crime and the victim. Like there are so many other elements happening here. Um, I feel like the best true crime does this really well. Um, and so far this book does seems to do a really, really solid job of it. 
And again, that is Slenderman, Online Obsession, Mental Illness, and the Violent Crime of Two Midwestern Girls by Kathleen Hale. All right. So those are our four picks. I feel like you all have a great selection there. And of course, all of the lists, the page that we have for the um, Edgar Awards, we will link that so you can see all of the lists and all of the titles. So you will have a never-ending TBR, which for me, I I think that's lovely. Um, But I don't want to stress anyone out. (laughs) Right? (laughs) I feel like that's always the goal. But um, sometimes people get stressed out about their TBRs. But Maybe that is a different discussion for another day. Well, this is a bad podcast to be <laughs> listening to then. <laughs> that is that is true. Um, but now now new books. They, okay, look, let me tell you, April 4th, there are so many incredible books out today. I have so many. It is one of the best release days of the year. So we have some well, great I was for gonna- you. And I was going to say, why don't you go ahead? Because since you already teased a little opening at the beginning of the show with your new with your new pick, why don't you go go ahead? Yes. Okay. So I started this book, and I had no idea that there were horror elements in it until I started reading it. So this is House of Cotton by Monica Brashears. Came out today, April fourth, as of this recording, and it is about Magnolia. She is nineteen, and we meet her in the church where her grandmother's funeral is being held. Uh, her her grandmother raised her. Her mom um, is gone somewhere. She uh, has struggled. Her mom has struggled with addiction for most of Magnolia's life. So she's not really part of Magnolia's life. So she is on her own in the house. Our grandma's house was bought by this creepy guy. Um, and then he rented it back to her. So this creepy guy is like circling her, wanting rent. And then she realizes she she might be pregnant. She's not sure, but she can't even afford like a pregnancy test. So she's trying to figure all of that out. She doesn't have a job. So really, and or at least she doesn't have like a consistent job. So this guy shows up with last name of, name of Cotton, comes from a very well-to-do white family. Magnolia is Appalachian, so she's a black Appalachian. And this guy hires her to play dead people. This is wild. Like, Katie, this is for you. (laughs) Magnolia's entire job is to have her makeup done. They give her a wardrobe, um, like costume makeup to make her look like the client's dead loved ones. And then she Zooms with the dead loved one's family so that they can have closure. So, like, say your daughter disappeared or your mom was, you know murdered and you didn't go to the funeral or whatever like this is helping the clients get closure let me tell you it is the most weird and wonderful book there's Afrolatian folklore and folkways there are spirits malevolent spirits there's body horror it is incredible well you had me at malevolent spirits and body horror And I don't want to give any spoilers because I had no I had no knowledge of what I was about to read. So I would highly recommend it. This is, again, an Afro-Latin author. It's always important to support um, our Afro-Latin authors. They do such a great job and they have such a rich heritage and culture. And I'm so happy to see it in this book. So I've already finished it. It's great. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> so what's your what's your pick katie sorry i was very excited <laughs> no um well i'm continuing with the nonfiction uh kick that i ended the main discussion with um but this book um is by really renowned uh author timothy egan it's called a fever in the heartland the ku klux klan's plot to take over america and the woman who stopped them so this one isn't i mean it's not a straight out thriller or a true crime, but it definitely has strong elements of that. And I think it fits, I think it fits really, really well. Um, but basically it's set during the twenties when the KKK was at the, was basically at the height of their, I don't know. I, I don't know what the right word is acceptability. The KKK was a very strong presence, um, not in, not necessarily in the Old South, but in the Midwest and out and even farther west than that. They really, they basically hated anyone who was not 
white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, basically. Um, and they really, obviously, we are familiar with the KKK, and they really took radical steps to keep to keep people who were not, who were not, uh, did not fit that wasp mold, uh, to keep them from establishing roots in America. And one of the people who is primarily in charge of this uh, was a man named D.C. Stevenson, um, who ended up uh, settling down in Indiana. And he became the the grand dragon of Indiana and the architect of the KKK strategy that brought them from a kind of like a shadowy group to one that was publicly endorsed by churches and, you know, everyday citizens and local politicians and senators. And it he really brought, made the KKK into a, you know, into a prominent political and social organization. Um, but then while all this is happening, there was a woman named Madge Ober Oberholzer um, who ended up kind of being the key to his undoing and bringing to light the um, the stuff that was happening in the background and uh, her testimony, her eventual testimony against the KKK finally really brought them down and really uh, you know took them out of the cultural, uh, not zeitgeist, but you know, it, they really took them out of the cultural mainstream. Um, so I feel like this is one of those elements of history that, you know, pretty much everyone in America is at least somewhat familiar with the KKK, but not the full history or certainly not this aspect of its history. And I think it sounds really, really interesting. Um, and like I said, Timothy Egan is just a really renowned uh, nonfiction writer. Um, he's won the Pulitzer. He's won the National Book Award. So I think this is a really, um, I think this topic is going to be in really good hands. So um, again, the book is called A Fever in the Heartland, The Ku Klux Klan's Plot to Take Over America and the Woman Who Stopped Them by Timothy Egan. Um, oh, and if I did not mention it already, it is out today. Awesome. Well, that should give everyone uh, a nice, a nice CBR to be getting on with. Um, and that is our show. Thanks so much to everyone for listening. And of course, as always, many thanks to our wonderful sound editor, Jen Zink, for making us sound great. We appreciate it. For show notes and all the books we mentioned today, head over to bookriot.com slash listen. For more book recommendations and bookish goodness, head over to bookriot.com. And don't forget to check out our full stable of podcasts at bookriot.com slash listen. Or you can just search Book Riot on your podcast player of choice. If you want to send us an email with feedback or show suggestions, you can reach us at redordead at bookriot.com. Otherwise, you can find me, Kendra, on Twitter and Instagram at kdwinchester. You can find Katie on Twitter at kt underscore library lady. As always, they will be linked in the show notes. And we will talk to you all next time. Bye.